The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer, W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will... Direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're ready to study the word. We need to make sure we're in fellowship. We need to be in prayer for... Houston and this storm that's headed this way, and uh, be in prayer also for the congregation. We need to continue to pray that we can get all the details worked out and get a contract signed on our new location. Things like storms also interfere with that too, so it's just living in the devil's world. Let's pray. Father, we know that you're in control of all the details of our lives. You're in control of the details of history. You're in control of the details of the weather. And, Father, as we see this storm headed in our direction and all the projections seem to indicate that we're going to be hit with it, we pray that you would, if possible, divert it in another direction, that it might not hit Houston. But We also understand that living in the devil's world, things like this happen and that there are catastrophes that occur. And these are just tests that give us as believers opportunities to trust you, opportunities to uh, be a witness to those around us, opportunities to be a testimony within the angelic conflict. And, Father, we pray that as we go through this test that we might be found faithful and that we might use the problem-solving devices to deal with the things that come our way. Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that we can be challenged by the things we study, understand the truth of Scripture, and recognize that these things are written for our edification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into our study in Genesis chapter 20, there are a couple of uh, housekeeping matters we need to take care of. Uh, We are canceling class on Thursday night. I think that uh, we'll see... Uh, evacuation orders uh, come along, or at least recommendation. I remember when I was pastoring down in Lamarck in uh, 83 when Alicia came through, 
we had church attendance of about 150 up to the Sunday before Alicia. And in the six months, I I was only there six months after that. But in those six months, it never got over 70. It just whacked people. If you remember, if you weren't here during Alicia, this is going to be the same kind of thing. It spawned so many little tornadoes that it tore up so much, uh, so many trees and everything. There was so much power that people were out cleaning up their yards for weeks. And, and my congregation there was an older congregation. And mean, the mean age in the congregation was 58. And ha- over half the church were retired. And it just sapped their energy trying to clean up their yards. So they just, you know, they just, they just never got back to church. It was, they were just exhausted. And it was depressing and discouraging. And, um, and that's the realities of life. Things like this are tough. But we have to uh, come together and pull together and do what we can. And so just to give people the uh, freedom to make sure they get out if they want to get out, we decided to go ahead and cancel class on Thursday. And then, of course, Sunday night's in question because when we have these storms, as you know, there's usually a power outage. And on the news this evening, they were predicting anywhere from two to five days of power outages in many areas. In some cases, we know it'll be even longer. I remember in Alicia, it was two weeks. For, half our church didn't get power for two weeks. And in other areas, it can, in Houston, it was like that. Some people, it was just three or four days. But if there's three days of power outages in this area, then we won't have power or air conditioning for Sunday night. And so we'll just make that contingent, and we can all call around on Sunday afternoon to the deacons or to myself to find out what the game plan is for Sunday night. But the rule here is just flexibility, and we'll be able to do what we can depending on how things go. And Lord willing, it's not going to be that serious, and we can just get back to uh, business as usual as quickly as possible. Now, for times like this, we need promises from the Word of God. So we have hot off the press, a new little booklet on God's powerful promises, and they're down here on the front table, so you can take as many as you want. Somebody told me that they took a couple of packs and put them out at their office, and they went like hotcakes. So uh, that's a good way to get the gospel to people. It's not just a list of promises. There's a, an opening introduction that explains the gospel, and this is just the first edition. We have plans to expand it and add more information about the faith rest drill and other things, but we just wanted to get something out uh, quickly in terms of, of, uh, especially thinking in terms of the Katrina victims. So now that we've gone through that, also uh, one other thing, and that is that we try to keep uh, an up-to-date list of everybody, call list in temporary quarters like this. It's a little difficult sometimes when we do have an emergency that comes up and we have to cancel class. We want to be able to contact everybody. So there's another list down here on the front. And we always want to keep that up to date. So you might want to check it, make sure your phone number's right. Or if you have a cell number, put that in there. If you have email in there, you want to get uh, contact by email. Just whatever information you want us to have so that we're able to uh, keep everybody up to date with what's going on. Okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20, and we're back into the test mode for Abraham. If you recall, there are 12 tests that I've identified that Abraham goes through, and they are all in relation to the promises that God has made him in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. 
And um, the point I made in the introduction to this is that God has made certain promises to us in the New Testament. And those promises related to the provisions He's given us in the Christian life for the church age, and there's a lot there. Most of you are familiar with the uh, 40 things that God did for us at the moment of salvation. Those are like a the Abrahamic Covenant. That's our positional truth. The Abrahamic Covenant was Abraham's positional reality with God. And so the tests come in relationship to those positional realities. So we have to understand in the church age who we are and what God has given us. And we need to understand those promises and provisions. And then when we encounter various life situations, circumstances, difficulties, problems, opposition, crises, catastrophes, whatever it may be, then we go to those different categories of provisions and promises to claim uh, the right doctrine related to the situation or the circumstance. And so we saw that the first test related to Abram was to get out of his country, and he did so in stages. And then there was another test related to the land. As soon as he got to the land, there was a famine in the land. But instead of staying there and trusting God, he left and he went to Egypt. Now, this is similar to the situation that we're going to find him in in Genesis 20. And I just want to remind you a little bit about what happened back in Genesis chapter 12. There was a famine in the land. That was the problem. All of a sudden, it seems like God's logistical grace has flown out the window. So Abraham looked around and he said, There's no food in the land. I've got to go somewhere. God's not providing for me here. So let's go to Egypt. And so they headed down to Egypt. And it's clear that that decision was a wrong decision. He's quit trusting God and he's relying on his own resources to solve the problems and the adversity in in life. Whereas God has specifically told him to be in the land. Now some of you are going to say, well... My home's here in Houston. Maybe I shouldn't leave. No, God didn't tell you to stay in Houston when there was a hurricane. You know, there was some lady today on television. I just Sometimes you just want to wring some Christians' necks. And they, they, they interviewed her down in Galveston, and they said, well, are you going to stay or are you going to leave? And she said, well, I'm just going to trust God, and I'm going to stay right here. Well, God gave you a brain, and if there's a 20-foot storm surge that they're predicting, you're going to have five feet of water in your house. You know, God's not going to just draw a little circle around your house and it's going to be protected. But some people don't understand that, that Christianity isn't an existential leap of faith into irrationality. That's not the faith rest drill. The faith rest drill includes using our brain to think about the realities of certain circumstances. Now, God didn't tell us to stay in Houston. I'm not saying you have to evacuate either. Don't take me wrong. But Abram was told to go to the land. And that's where God was going to test him was in relationship to the promise that God had, had, had given him. And instead of staying there, he said, I'm going to go down to Egypt and handle things in my own way. And we saw that there were some consequences from that decision. The first was that in carnality, he continues to try to solve his own problems his own way. So he lies about Sarah. It's sort of a half-truth. And we'll see that that's so typical of how we try to handle things. We, we rationalize and justify and make it seem like it's okay. Actually, she's my half-sister, so when I say she's my sister, uh, I'm really not lying. And, uh, but that's what he was doing. He was misrepresenting the situation. He wasn't being honest. And, and um, 
So Pharaoh took Sarah into her into his harem. Now this threatened the seed. We're going to see the same issue with with uh, when he goes to Gerar in Philistia in chapter 20. It's a threat to the seed promise. And the other dynamic is that he's also supposed to be a blessing to all his neighbors. And because he puts the seed in jeopardy, God disciplines the Pharaoh. He's going to do the same thing again in Philistia. And instead of being a blessing, he's a curse. And, and so there was apparently some sort of, of uh, disease or other and plagues upon Pharaoh uh, in verse 17. And Pharaoh finally realizes this is some act of God and he called Abram in and got the truth and then he uh, commanded that Sarah be given back to Abram. He never had had sexual relations with her uh, as opposed to some other people who use that phrase and um, that preserved her integrity. Now we're going to see the same kind of thing happen in this test but it's a different test. Some liberals come along and they say well these are the same accounts it just they just uh, have been uh, conflated, or they've just been, uh, they've just overlapped, and so they're, they're telling the same story different ways. Well, that's the liberal agenda. They don't trust the Word of God. No, these are distinct episodes. Now, the second test takes place when Abraham and Sarah went back to the land. He's prosperous, Lot's prosperous. Their, uh, their employees, their hired hands are fighting each other, and so Abram has to deal with this, and he handles it well. He deals with lot in grace orientation. And then there's another test in chapter 14 with the invasion of the four kings from the east in the Keterleomer alliance. And he handles that by protecting his neighbors. He's functioning as a blessing to those around him. And then there's another test when he comes back when he meets Melchizedek. Is he going to be uh, respond toward God's grace with generosity in giving? And he passes that test. Then there's another test in chapter 15 related to uh, the covenant and is he going to trust God and not be afraid and trust Him. And so he does that. But then there's another test in chapter 16 and that relates to the seed and Sarah's option, divine viewpoint, excuse me, human viewpoint solution. Uh, Take Hagar as your wife and produce the seed through her. And so he listens to his wife. And the text is clear that this is parallel. Uh, wants the reader to remember that Adam also listened to his wife, so there's that overtone. And he fails the test, and that creates problems on down through history. That's the law of unintended consequences. Then there's a, another test in chapter 17. Let's see, we've gone through 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Sixth test, we get to the seventh test in chapter 17. And that's a test related again to the covenant and the command to be circumcised. And then there's a, the next test, the eighth test, is related to generosity again and hospitality when the three visitors come in chapter 18. And then the second part of 18, it's a test related to his care for Lot. Is When he hears about judgment on Sodom, is he going to intercede for Lot? And he does that. So that's our ninth test. And then we now come to our tenth test. And the tenth test relates to protecting the seed once again. It's an issue of protecting the seed. 
And in this chapter, the underlying doctrine that is so clear is God's protection of the believer, even when the believer is out of fellowship and in carnality. It's a tremendous doctrinal message of hope that even when we're screwing up, God doesn't desert us. He still protects and provides for us in terms of His plan. He doesn't desert us. We may desert Him and we may disobey Him, but God never deserts or disobeys, I mean, never deserts or forgets us in the process. He still keeps things moving along in His plan. Our failures never jeopardize God's plan. Our volition cannot jeopardize God's plan. His sovereignty is such that in human history He's built in enough flexibility in history that even when we make bad decisions and disobedient decisions, God's sovereign control is great enough to where it can flex with our chaos and He still is able to produce that which He intended to produce. The only thing is, if we are disobedient, we miss out on the blessings and the spiritual growth that we would have if we were if we were obedient. Now, one of the things that we see, one of the other principles that we see in this chapter, which is one that comes home to every one of us living in our uh, postmodern relativistic world, is one that has to do with rationalizations of sin. You see, what we have here is a problem a problem of security. It's not a problem that's unfamiliar to any of us living in Houston with crime rate the way it is. Abraham is going to go to Gerar, and we don't know why he went there. I think it's very possible he just went there on business, and he decided to stay a while. He's not out of line going to Gerar, and I'll show you why I say that in a little bit, because the land of the Philistines, and here's a map, And the land of Philistia is this sort of, uh, what color is that, sort of beige-colored territory down here along the coast. And if you notice, Gerar is uh, circled in yellow. And just to the northwest of Gerar is Gaza. This is the same Gaza Strip area that we read about on the news right now. And this was the ancient land of the, of the Philistines. This is where they had the five cities of Philistia, Gaza, Eshkelon, Ashta, Ashdod, Gath, and Gerar. These are the five cities of the five lords of Philistia later on in, when we get into the conquest era in Judges and Samuel. But this area is still populated or is originally populated by some of the early migrants from Crete. We'll get into that in a minute. And they were Philistines. They preceded the later 13th and 12th century migration of the Sea People. So they're uh, sort of intermarrying and uh, interacting with the, with the Semites who lived in that area. But he's not outside of God's will here. Remember, Egypt, he's outside of God's will. But in Philistia, he's not outside of God's will because according to the parameters of the land that God promised him, this is land that is within those parameters. So he's not outside the geographical will of God. So he goes there. It's valid for him to go there. It's a right thing for him to do to go to Gerar. 
But when he is there, he feels threatened because of security. He thinks somebody's going to steal his wife. He feels like there's a, a certain amount of uh, criminal element or violence that may be done to him there. And so out of fear, out of anxiety, out of concern for his own security, he decides to solve the problem his own way. And so we have Abram doing a right thing the wrong way. And this is a typical problem we all run into. Whenever we, affect, we, whenever we get involved with some problem, some difficulty, whether we feel threatened and it's generating some sort of mental attitude sin, such as fear, worry, anxiety, whatever the circumstances may be, where our security is at risk, or maybe it has to do with uh, another type of sin that's motivated by anger or resentment or jealousy or bitterness, and it's going to overflow into some sort of overt sin. What, we try, what we're trying to do is, at core, protect ourselves. We're trying to do something to avoid this loss, this uh, deal with this fear, this anxiety. And so we develop strategies out of our sin nature to provide security for our own person, our physical being, our soul, whatever it may be. We think that somehow we're being threatened, that we're vulnerable to attack or assault or loss or something. So we say, okay, I know how to solve this problem. And the easiest and best solution is to do X, whatever X may be. And in Abraham's case, he didn't learn the lesson from, from uh, back there with Egypt when he told a half-truth or a half-lie, which is a full lie, he didn't learn his lesson, and he's going to do the same thing. We see that this is a consistent pattern in his life. Rather than trusting God to protect him in a hostile environment, he's going to do it himself, and he's going to uh, utilize a half-lie, or actually that makes it a full lie, to handle it. So there's three principles we have to remember that are just so simple we always forget them. And I find it so helpful just to break it down this way. Remember, a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. I mean, that's real simple. It's, some people say, well, that's just obvious. A wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Well, we know that. But you see, the second principle is where people get confused. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. And that means that the right thing, which is your end result, your ultimate goal, whatever it is you're trying to achieve, that if you do that and you use a faulty methodology or an illegitimate methodology or a sinful methodology, you do something the wrong way, it's wrong. In other words, how you do what you do is as important as what you do. Now, you all sit there and you say, well, that just sort of seems obvious. But there's been so many discussions I've had over the years with people that when it comes down to certain situations, they just don't see that. And one of the, one of the things I remember getting in discussions with with other seminary students when I was in seminary is that there's right ways and wrong ways to even present the gospel. And there's a right way to present the gospel and a wrong way to present the gospel. And if you're trying to evangelize people and you use a sort of bait-and-switch technique, which is what you'll find in a lot of 
of uh, churches today, they, it's, it's a bait and switch. Come on down. We're going to entertain you. We're going to have rock bands. We're going to have music. We're going to do all this. And somehow we hope that in the midst of enticing you with good entertainment, I'm using the term relatively, speaking good entertainment, entertainment that attracts you, then when we shift and start giving you the Bible, that somehow you're going to respond to that. And usually what happens is the, uh, the gospel gets so watered down and biblical truth gets so compromised that uh, you end up messing everything up. People don't hear the gospel, or if they do, they never grow. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it, it's just terrible. And that's what's happening in so many churches today. And evangelism is just one area. It's an application of situational ethics inside the church. But it's not just spiritual things. It happens in business decisions all the time. I watch businessmen and I listen to them and they make certain decisions and say, well, we're going to do this. And I'm thinking, you know, it's that's an end justifies the means thing. They're not thinking very deeply or profoundly about how they're doing what they're doing. And somehow in their methodology, they're compromising their integrity and they don't even know it. Because they're so concerned about the bottom line, the end result, building the company, doing the right thing, advancing in the corporation, that they don't think clearly about how they're going about what they're doing as a believer. So a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. This can affect all kinds of different things. Third principle, only a right thing done in a right way is right. Now, what Abraham is going to do here is he's going to do a right thing, go to Gerar, but he's, in order to protect himself, he's going to do it in a wrong way. So his methodology really creates a problem in Gerar. Rather than being a blessing, rather than being a source of blessing by association to Abimelech, who's the ruler in Gerar, and to the uh, royal family there and to others, Abram, because he's done it a wrong way, creates collateral damage. And there's unintended consequences to his little white lie that affect a vast number of people. And it almost brings uh, death on Abimelech, virtually a sin unto death, even though I do not think Abimelech was a believer. God was going to take him out in discipline if he didn't remove Sarah from his, his harem. So a right thing done in a wrong way is just as wrong and absolutely poisons the well so that whatever comes out of that has been tainted by a carnal methodology and it doesn't honor God at all. Utilizing this principle of a right thing done in a wrong way is the same principle of the end justifies the means. And in that process, we all, and we all do it, there's not a person in this room that's not guilty of it at some level or another. And a lot of it is just the influence of the cosmic system around us. This is our culture. It's been immersed in... Uh, rationalization and justification in situational ethics for years. We constantly think as long as the end result is honorable and good, then it doesn't matter how I go about it. And yet the Scripture says it does. And this can apply to anything. It can apply to winning the war against terrorism. 
There's right ways and wrong ways to conduct yourselves in, in, in wars. Uh, making your business more profitable. There are ethical ways and unethical ways to make your business stronger and more profitable. There are ethical and unethical ways to present yourself. Uh, maybe it's more personal. Maybe it's just being financially uh, solid in your own personal dealings and being able to pay your bills and have enough money at the end of the month to take care of everything, uh, doing it in a right way without uh, getting involved in a lot of debt that ultimately piles up on you and is self-destructive. It can involve the decisions in a local church. I can give you all kinds of war stories that either I've personally witnessed in different churches or I have heard from different pastors about how uh, deacon boards and leadership teams in local churches come to the... In fact, one of the, one of the great problems I think that pastors face in churches is that they have deacons who are businessmen who bring to the deacon board table the practices that they're used to in the secular world. And they run the church according to the same principles that's their frame of reference within the business community. And the church isn't a business, folks. There may be principles that are similar between good sound practice in terms of handling finances and recording finances and things of that nature that you have in business as you have in a church. There may be Overlaps, there's parallels in terms of leadership and objectives in defining what you're doing. But a church is a ministry operating under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ that has a specific guidebook called the Scriptures. And it's not the same thing as a business. And when you get, and I've heard pastors, I was in a church at one time, I won't mention where it is, I had three we had elders in that church. I had three elders, all of whom were entrepreneurs. And they wanted uh, business plans, and they wanted goal and objective statements, and they wanted measurable goals and objectives for the church for every year. And I said, hey, wait a minute. This is not how you run a ministry. God's standard, God's goal is that you're faithful, and you faithfully teach the Word, and He's the one who's going to bring the increase. And it's fine and good to think in terms of certain kinds of goals and objectives, but at the end of the year, if God's not working in that direction, you're not going to be any further along in terms of those goals and objectives than than otherwise. And it was constantly an area of friction. And I've seen this and heard these stories from other pastors because there are differences in running a business and running a ministry that change the dynamic. And ministry is about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about teaching the Word. And it's about serving people. It's not about accumulating a, a great bottom line in terms of the finances of the church. It's not, in ter- it's not uh, based on uh, long-range goals in terms of building a huge plant or huge building or all of these other things that relate to the kind of concrete, measurable goals and objectives that businesses have. It's about serving the Lord and serving people, and it's ultimately about trusting God to provide the resources no matter what happens, and you can't quantify that when you're uh, like you do in a business. So it's a different animal, and I've seen that over and over again where churches 
operate on human viewpoint rationales in terms of developing their policies and procedures. They do it when they call a pastor. I can't give you story after story after story of churches that I have seen who when they're calling a pastor, what's happened? The pastor, the shepherd's gone. There's no leadership. So you get a group of men, and the only frame of reference they have is hiring somebody down at the office. And so they use that as the frame of reference for developing their procedures to interview a pastor. And once again, it's a different animal. You do not do it the same way. You're not hiring an accountant. You're not hiring another uh, business partner. You're not hiring some uh, uh, an administrative assistant. You're looking for somebody God has called to pastor and lead that congregation, and it has different dynamics. And that's just uh, another example. And so you see again and again and again, both inside the church and outside the church, people think they know what they should do, and often they have a right view of where they should go, but they do it the wrong way. And one of the things you always see when they do a right thing the wrong way is that there's just collateral damage and splatter all over people that causes causes division, it causes reaction, it causes anger, it causes bitterness, it causes resentment. And when a a church, especially, and a believer is doing things the right way, there may sometimes be that kind of collateral damage, but usually not among uh, members in the body. You have it happen politically. Great examples of the end justifies the means are socialism. Socialism, the end result is, is, appears to be good, and that is to provide uh, income and stability in homes and for, for the poor. And so the emphasis is on the poor, but in the process you forget that those who are working, those who are spending all the time accumulating capital, those who are investing their capital and risking their capital are uh, penalized in a socialistic system, and those who do nothing get the rewards from those who work. And again, it's an end justifies the means mentality. This is what was the foundation of the whole philosophy of Adolf Hitler. He was a Nazi, and that stands for the uh, Nationalsozialistische Arbeiterspartei. It was the National Socialist Workers' Party. And the whole thing was, was about an end justifies the means. Stalin, end justifies the means. Most tyrants get there on an end justifies the means uh, policy. And they do it through bullying people through various different, uh, different means and methods. So you have lots of examples of the end justifies the means mentality. In our modern era, a lot of this comes out of the thinking of Joseph Fletcher in his books on situational ethics. And you'll find this leaking out in all kinds of management courses. You'll find it in, in, uh, in, in the business and in the workplace when they try to teach interpersonal skills. And uh, according to Fletcher's situational ethics, the highest standard was, a, was love. Sounds so biblical, doesn't it? We're going to love everybody. And, um, but in his thinking, uh, a loving act was anything that was done with loving intentions. So if your intentions are good, it doesn't matter what you actually did, it makes it okay because you, you had good intentions, you were sincere. And this has played itself out in many ways in, in our culture. It's the same thing with the third temptation of Christ. Satan tempted 
uh, Christ and he said, he laid out all the kingdoms before him and says, if you will worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms. You don't have to go to the cross. You can get there directly. Right now, you can have all the kingdoms. And you don't have to do it by going through that unimaginable uh, horror of bearing the sins of humanity. It was an end justifies the means approach. Doing the right thing, Jesus' goal was to get the kingdom, but doing it the wrong way. So this is exactly what we see in Genesis 20. Abraham perceives a threat. He's personally threatened. Their security, their safety is threatened. And so he, instead of trusting God and claiming promises and knowing that God has promised him something in the future, and therefore God is going to keep him alive and keep Sarah alive so this, the, the child can be born. She's either not yet pregnant or just barely pregnant. If you work out the time frame, uh, remember God just appeared to him just shortly before this. Uh, and said when he comes back in a year, the child will be born. So we don't know exactly what the timing is, but we know that uh, it's very close to that event. So she is either barely pregnant or just about to become pregnant. And uh, God is going to protect the seed because that's his promise. But Abraham doesn't trust God. It's a failure of the faith rest drill, which is what underlies every type of example. So in order to resolve the fear the issue of his own security, he chooses a strategy that involves just a half-truth. See, we say, well, it's it's really true, isn't it? She is my sister. She's my half-sister. And we do that all the time. We just crank up some kind of explanation that sounds good. Okay, let's look at the text. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south. And we have a map up on the overhead. And if you look in the center of Judah there, I have a yellow circle around Hebron. Hebron is where the oaks of Mamre were, and that's where he had lived for the most part for the last 25 years. Now he's almost 100, or he's just turned 100, because that's when the age of Isaac's birth, and he has now suddenly decided to head south. And so the text says he journeyed from there to the south to the Negev, and dwelt between Kadesh, which is Kadesh Barnea down here on the uh, lower part of the screen, and Shur. Now we're not located, we're not sure where Shur was located, but there's a wilderness of Shur that is in the northern part of Egypt, or of the Sinai Peninsula, just to the southwest of Kadesh Barnea. So he has gone to the southernmost extremity of the land, and he's living there. Now, if you notice on this map, there's a little wadi, a dotted line here, which indicates what what we'd call in the U.S. an intermittent stream. That means it gets wet when there's rain. And that's the Wadi el-Arish. And many biblical scholars believe it's the Wadi el-Arish, not the Nile, that is the river of Egypt that is the border uh, of the land that God promised to Israel. And I think there's good support for that. That beyond this, you would be in the land or the territory of Egypt. So he's gone down to the southernmost extremity of the land. Now remember, way back when we were in Genesis 12, Abraham came into the land, and the first thing he did was he went to Shechem, which is in the north. Then he went between uh, Bethel 
and Ai, and he built a second altar there, and then he went down into the south near Beersheba, and he built an altar there. And I pointed out that what he's doing is he's going through the land, and he's staking the claim related to the promise of God. And that still seems to be what he is doing. He is walking throughout the the width and breadth of the land that God has promised him because this is his. And even though he doesn't own it and he doesn't see that ownership and he won't until the resurrection, he is walking throughout that land. So he goes down to Kadesh Barnea for a while and then he decides to stay or to sojourn literally in the Hebrew to travel to Gerar. And we don't know if he went up to Gerar for a little vacation or since he's a wealthy businessman, if he went up there to secure some uh, trade contracts, the text doesn't tell us why he went there. Now, some people suggest, well, he went there because there was another famine, but the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say there was another famine. The Bible gives no reason whatsoever for why he went. Some people think that he went there to get away from uh, the destruction around the Salt Sea, that there was... Uh, you know, all that asphalt and all the sulfur and everything. Maybe there was a prevailing wind from the southeast and it wasn't very pleasant to get that air pollution, so he headed south. Whatever the reason, it's okay for him to move because he's within the land. Now, I want you to hold your place right here, and we're going to turn over a couple of chapters to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. We'll just pick up the context in verse 1. This is having to do with Isaac, next generation. There was a famine in the land. Now, there's a famine back in chapter 14 or chapter 12 with Abraham. There's a famine here, but there's no famine mentioned in chapter 20. There's a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. That's related to Genesis 12. So that makes it clear that whatever is going on in Genesis 20, it's not related to a famine. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land. Now where is he? He's in Gerar. He's in the land of the Philistines. And God says, Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. So there's a reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant at that point, the land promise, to uh, Isaac. And it's within the will of God for him to be in Gerar. This is, this is fine. Don't go to Egypt. That's outside the land. But you can stay here. This is part of the land promise. So the same thing would be true for Abraham. There's nothing wrong, uh, nothing outside the will of God for him to be in Gerar. But there are problems in Gerar, just as there are always problems that we're going to face in life no matter where we are. And there seems to be a, a cultural or a criminal issue that is prevalent in the ancient world. Notice... Think about this. When, when Abraham went down to visit the Pharaoh, went down to Egypt that first time, he's afraid somebody's going to take his wife. That if she, he's married to her and she's his wife, somebody's going to want her and they're going to kill him and take his wife. Now when he gets into Gerar, it's the same kind of thing. 
he's afraid that somebody's going to kill him and take his wife. And then when we get over to Genesis 26, Isaac has the same fear. He goes to Gerar and he's afraid somebody's going to kill him and take his wife. And we saw the similar kind of thing in Sodom, that when the visitors came into Sodom, uh, there seems to be this cultural thing when you're, where the, the perverts are going to uh, rape some new visitor. So there seems to be some sort of uh, custom, perverted custom at this time in the ancient world, where if you showed up and it was uh, with a, a good-looking woman, and if she was your sister, they would try to buy her. But if she was your wife, they'd just kill you and steal your wife. And, and, and that's just a conclusion from the fact that all throughout this period you keep seeing this issue raise itself and they keep being afraid that somebody's going to kill them and steal their wife. So Abram said of Sarah his wife in verse 2, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So he's pulling the same strategy he pulled before. He hadn't learned his lesson. And Sarah just goes along with it. Remember, she is a picture of the obedient wife in Peter. Peter says, And Sarah obeyed Abraham her Lord. And even when Abraham is doing the wrong thing, Sarah is praised because she recognizes her authority and she's not going to step out from under her authority. She's still going to follow her authority even if it's not do- he's not doing the right thing. This is a very interesting uh, example of that that is picked up in the New Testament. But God is going to protect her. And this is where we see God's protection even when we're wrong. He protects us despite our stupidity. And He's going to intervene to protect Abraham and to protect the seed. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him... Now this is interesting. You only have a few examples in Scripture where God speaks in a dream. The most of the examples of God speaking in a dream are in Genesis before there is a written canon of any kind. Remember, this is before Moses is going to write the Mosaic Law. You also have God appearing in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is another unique time period in Israel's history. And and he appears here to Abimelech. I mean... Let's start at the beginning. He appears to Pharaoh. He appears to Abimelech. He appears to the Pharaoh with Joseph in a dream. He's going to uh, communicate uh, through Moses to the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And then there's no more dreams until you get to Daniel. And then he appears in dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. So this is an unusual form of special revelation. The reason I say that is somebody you always run into somebody who has vivid dreams, and they say, I wonder what God's trying to tell me. He's not trying to tell you anything. Just quit eating double jalapeno pizzas before you go to bed. You know, just calm down a little bit. So God is speaking to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Indeed, you are a dead man because of this woman. And in the Hebrew, it is very emphatic. Dead because of this woman. Indeed, you're, and this is an unintended consequence. Here you have uh, Abraham just trying to protect himself, protect his wife, make sure they're safe and secure. I'm just going to tell this little white lie. 
And when we are out of fellowship, just as there's blessing by association, there's also discipline and cursing by association. And we don't realize what the unintended consequences may be from our own carnality and how that affects the people around us. And so here's Abimelech, this Gentile ruler, and God says, I'm going to take out your life immediately because of this woman who you've taken, for she's a man's wife. Now, the next verse gives us Moses' editorial, or excuse me, gives us uh, Abimelech's response. Abimelech had not come near her. That means it's a euphemism. He hadn't had sexual relations with that woman yet, or with Sarah yet. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Now, where does that come from? You notice what was going on back in chapter 19? Abraham comes to, to God and says, what makes a righteous nation? How many people in a nation need to be righteous before you will avoid punishing them? And so it's picking up the same theme as we had in chapter 19. The nation is righteous. They haven't violated God's standard in this area. They're not guilty. But what we have on Abraham's part is not a sin of commission, but a sin of ignorance or a sin of omission. And even though it's not an egregious sin of action, it's a sin of, of omission, there's still serious consequences. And when we get, out, uh, get over into the Mosaic Law, God is going to make an issue out of intentional and unintentional sins, but they both need to have a sacrifice and there needs to be cleansing, even if it's an unintentional sin. So with Abimelech, it's an unintentional sin. He doesn't know it's... She's Abraham's wife, and he does not, did not intend to violate the marriage contract. So Lord, he says, will you slay a righteous nation? Did he not say to me, it's Abraham's fault. Uh, she is my sister, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother. So Sarah went along with Abraham's white lie and deception. She, even she herself, said, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. Notice how Abimelech is an unbeliever. And we must assume he's an unbeliever because there's no evidence to the contrary. Uh, even as an unbeliever, he recognizes that he's faultless. And that's what he's saying. Lord, I am faultless in this. How can you be just and discipline me? And take my life when I haven't done this intentionally. And so verse 6, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. So apparently time has gone by. This just didn't happen in a couple of days. There's, there's been some other things that have happened. Uh, all the women in the land are barren. God closed up the wombs of all the women. Now, several months have to go by before people are going to catch on to the fact that no women are getting pregnant. Have you thought about that? It takes a while before you realize all of a sudden that, wait a minute, wait a minute, nobody's pregnant. Nobody's giving birth. What's going on? So obviously Abraham and Sarah had to be there for a while before uh, they would begin to recognize this. And during that time, uh, one of the ancient rabbis suggested that God had made Abimelech impotent, but whatever it was, he prevented him from going into the harem and having uh, any kind of sexual relations with Sarah. So God comes to him and says, I withheld you from sinning against me. Principle. 
all sin is against God. It wasn't sinning against Abraham. It wasn't sinning against Sarah. It is sinning against God because sin is a violation of God's standard. Therefore, whenever we sin, no matter who it hurts in terms of the human realm and the human consequences, it's not, sin is not a violation of human law. It is a violation of God's character. And so all sin is against God. I know that you did this, uh, verse 7. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, which is the first time the word is used in the Old Testament. And Abraham was a not just the father of the uh, Jewish race, he is a prophet, designated as a prophet. And he will pray for you and you shall live. And this indicates that intercessory prayer is one of the functions of a prophet, even though we associate that with a priest, It is also associated with Abraham's function as a prophet at this time. It says, He will pray for you and you shall live. That would be evidence to those around that that Abimelech had not had any kind of sexual contact with Sarah. Because once he restored Sarah to Abraham and Abraham prayed for him, the fact that he did not die would be a sign of his fidelity. And then God says, but if you did not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now that seems kind of serious, doesn't it? But remember, it's related to protecting the seed. God is going to do whatever it takes to protect Sarah's womb because it's through her womb that the plan of salvation is going and it's through her womb that you have the promised seed. Now, it's interesting, uh, the phrase that you have here in verse 7. He says, you will surely die. Now, let me tell you, everybody here, many of you, have heard many times in your life that back in Genesis 2.17, when God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you will surely die. And you've heard that interpreted on basis of the Hebrew that it should be translated with a gerund, Dying you shall die, as if there are two deaths indicated there. Dying being spiritual death, you shall die being physical death. And I remember years ago, I don't know who originated that, but it's been around a long time, and a lot of different Bible teachers have taught that for for some time, at least in the 20th century. I remember my, that was a couple of years before I went to Dallas, I went up to seminary and I was sitting on bed in Randy Price's dorm room and we were talking about some different things and, and he was talking about how he said, Robbie, you wouldn't believe it. We, we always heard that it should be translated dying, you shall die. And Dr. Unger gave a chapel message the other day in chapel and, and uh, said that wasn't true. He said, you know, there's some funny things going on here. Well, the reality is that Dr. Unger was exactly right. He was an excellent Hebrew scholar. The phrase that you have both in Genesis 2.17 and here is it's a doubling of the verb. The first use of it, uh, it's the verb mote meaning to die. The first use is in the infinitive absolute form and the second is in the cal imperfect. And when you did that in Hebrew, the, the thrust of the grammar was to say this is an, is an absolute immediate certainty. This is sure. This is certain. It's, you don't double the verb going dying, you will die, because that wouldn't make sense here. If you do not restore her, know that dying, you will die. That doesn't make sense, does it? 
But it's the same phrase, identical phrase that you have in Genesis 2.17. The idea is one of certainty and immediate consequences. Now, the reason I say that is because when you talk about Genesis 2.17, I emphasize the fact that that is talking about spiritual death and not physical death. It's talking about t- telling Adam that the instant you do this, you will die. Whatever else happens, you're going to die the instant you do that. It's an immediacy, a certainty. And that's what you have with, with uh, uh, Abimelech because Abimelech's going to die, isn't he? He's living after the fall. He's going to die. Everybody else has died up to that point. Abimelech is going to die. So God isn't coming along and saying, no, for sure that you're going to die. Hello? He already knew that. He knew he was going to die. God is saying, if you don't turn this woman back to her husband, you're going to die right now. And so you take that understanding of the grammar and plug it back into Genesis 2.17, you realize that what God is talking about in the penalty for sin is something that's going to happen immediately when Adam sins and not 900 years later when he dies physically. And my argument is that we have to make clear that physical death is not the penalty for, spirit, for, for sin. It's spiritual death. I mean, if facetious way of looking at it is physical death was the penalty, then when we die physically, we'd all pay for our sin and we'd just go, everybody could go to heaven. But it's amazing how few people want to make that distinction between uh, spiritual death as the penalty for sin and physical death as a consequence. Okay, let's go back to our narrative. So God says you're going to surely die. And Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin with this cursing that you've brought us? See, Abraham's supposed to be the, the path of blessing, but he's become the source of cursing. Then, then uh, Abimelech said to Abraham in verse 10, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? In other words, how many times have you said this to your kids? Weren't you thinking... You know, think past the end of your nose. You've created a whole host of problems. I've got every woman in the kingdom is having a fertility problem now, and the marriages are breaking up because they can't have babies, and everything's falling apart, and you just wanted to protect your butt. Verse 11, Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. That's the problem. He's trying to generate his own security and protect himself his own way rather than trusting in in God. And in verse 12, he gives his very uh, anemic explanation. For indeed, she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he's my brother. Now, Abimelech is going to make things right. It shows he's a man of real integrity. He takes sheep and oxen, male and female servants. It's the same thing that the Pharaoh did. He's going to make restitution. He's taken this woman from Abraham as his wife. He's going to make amends. He's going to vindicate uh, the whole situation and, and justify and bring everything back to a position of rectitude. So he, he gives uh, sheep, oxen, 
female servants, and he restores Sarah to be his wife. And then he's very generous. See, unbelievers can be very generous and have tremendous integrity as well. He says, My land is before you dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, before I have given, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He gets sheep, cattle, oxen, slaves, and money. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you. In other words, by paying this, I'm demonstrating that I have not had any physical contact with you whatsoever. And, and then it says, thus she was rebuked. And actually the word there, indicate, uh, translated rebuked, is a word that means thus she was uh, vindicated or thus she was proven right. It's not the idea of rebuke in the sense of correction. It's the idea that she has been uh, demonstrated to be, uh, to be vindicated, to be right. Verse 17, So then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we see that there's a problem of infertility throughout the city of Gerar, all because of Adam's carnality. And the same thing is true for us. When we make carnal decisions, when we make bad decisions from a position of weakness, we never know what the unintended consequences are going to be. And yet in God's grace, just like with Abraham, God will discipline us, but on the same hand, God often protects us from our own bad decisions. Even when we're our own worst enemy, God is still watching over us, and in his providential care, he's taking care of us. Next time we come to the great focus of the whole Abrahamic narrative, and that's the birth of Isaac, and we'll see that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that we'd be challenged by the uh, thinking here to recognize that everything in the Christian life should be done in a right way. The right thing done in a right way glorifies you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.